I watched Barbara Kendall win her gold medal in Barcelona and I went, that's pretty cool. That's awesome. It just kind of popped up that the Olympic sailing was more achievable at that time. And so I ate, slept, trained, breathed, everything I did was to get to the Olympics. And um, I did it in two and a half years. times we blew out the the Jennicas, you know and they had to be repaired so I had this tiny little sewing machine in the port bow that I was literally sticking the sails back together with and these sails were as big as tennis courts and you you're repairing them in this tiny little um, tunnel basically <laughs> for about literally 30 seconds and we went down this wave and there was no way to get off it. Imagine pitch poling a 92 feet boat in the Southern Ocean. It was probably one of the most upsetting moments in my whole life to see this rig come down, the gut-wrenching feel of everything's over in an instant and the whole record was over. There's not a lot Sharon Ferris-Choate hasn't done in sailing. She's a two-time Olympian, first woman to be part of a team to win a round-the-world race, world speed record breaker, and the first woman to skipper a GC32 team. And she's not done yet. The Northlander talks in this podcast about how she stumbled into the sport, how she found herself at the Atlanta Olympics only two and a half years after committing to an Olympic campaign her long association with the legendary Tracy Edwards, and what's still left on her bucket list. There have been plenty of highlights along the way, like breaking the 24-hour distance world record and winning the Oryx Quest, but also major disappointments, not least of all when Royal and Sun Alliance dismastered deep in the Southern Ocean when on track to claim the Jules Verne Trophy. Sharon was on the helm when the Maxi Catamaran lost its rig and details what happened and why she still has regrets about that day nearly 25 years later. Sharon is an extraordinary sailor who is largely unheralded in this country. She's deeply passionate about the sport and the need to provide greater opportunities for women, and is always searching for what might be around the corner. This podcast chat flew by and left me feeling like we'd only just scratched the surface. So I hope you enjoy. Joining us on the show today is Sharon Ferris-Choate. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I also understand it's welcome back to New Zealand, having recently returned from sailing with the Maiden Project from Palmer to Miami. So it's probably a good place for us to start today. So perhaps you can expand on how that came about and what it entailed. Yeah, absolutely. We had a huge adventure from Palmer to Miami. Um, basically... Uh, we were dodging tsunamis, 
active volcanoes, storms, or thousands of miles of no wind. So it was a, um, there was never a dull moment. It was a huge adventure and um, something that I'm very proud of. And what, how did your um, association came come about with that? You know, what, what were you doing on board? I, I've had the privilege of being now um, part of all of Tracy's campaigns and basically I've had a 24-year year relationship with Tracy when I was a nipper on board Royal and Sun Alliance and she has continually invited me back to, to join her projects and over the years I've gone from being the nipper to now this last um, trip being the skipper and the navigator. Um, I've got a great working relationship with Tracy. It's an honour to to skip a maiden because it has a, um, she has a lot of sentimental value um, for me as she inspired me when I was a twelve year old, and um, it's it's great what she's doing with the project. So for the uninitiated, perhaps you could just explain what it is that Tracy is trying to achieve with the maiden factor and what sort of work you do, I guess, outside of merely sailing the boat? Yeah, so basically what what Maiden does is um, about five years ago, Maiden was abandoned. And unfortunately, after the race um, in 89, Tracy had to sell the boat to pay off debt from the race. She financed the whole thing by basically mortgaging her own home to the hilt to be able to do the race. And someone got in contact with her and sent her a photo of Maiden and said, look, your baby's not looking too good. So she tracked down the owner, bought the boat, managed to get sponsorship to bring her back to, to the UK um, and and did her up. And now she's in amazing condition for a 40-year-old boat and they are doing a world tour, which is promoting girls' education. There's millions of girls still today that don't have access to the basics of education. And Maiden is doing a world tour to try and raise funds to try and um, establish a way for these girls to be educated and have the basics, which is incredible. So what sort of reaction do you get when you visit some of these countries or you go to some of these events? Basically, it's an awe. It's an awe. It's a, first of all, it's an awe of the original maidens and what Tracy and the girls did um, because the boat is so famous, Tracy's so famous, and what they actually did. You know, when when they first did it, it was like, oh, you're going to kill yourself. It's a It's a boat it's a boat full of tarts you know and a tin boat and stuff like that it was really really derogative it was really negative it was they're going to be dead within the first five days it was all that kind of chat going on which if you know Tracy that just fuels the fire that's just like pouring straight petrol onto onto the embers and she's gonna just prove you wrong and that's exactly what they did um, to the point where they won two legs, they fin- finished second in their division, and it's the br- best British result ever in that race. So the accomplishments and what they did was huge. And what what sort of reaction do you get these days when you turn up, uh, you know, on this education crusade? 
the same. It's exactly the same, which is phenomenal. Um, and the girls are in awe. We had a, a group of teenagers come down to the boat in Miami and all they wanted to do was help with the boat. And we said, well, the only job we've got left is to clean it. And and I was like, well, like, we can't give these poor kids the, you know, cleaning the bilge job. And so they polished um, the top sides for us. And the top sides are where the the boat goes from the water line up to the, the side of the boat, you know. And these teenagers were polishing Maiden and they were buzzing and they were so happy and they were like, oh, yeah, we've polished Maiden kind of thing. And I was like, that's really cool that they were so inspired and, and obviously they got to look around, you know, they got pictures behind the wheel and stuff like that, but they, they'd followed the story, they knew the story. The Maiden story is actually on Netflix now, which is probably only one of the one sailing stories, you know, that is actually on Netflix and they'd watched it, they watched it a few times and now they were standing on that boat and it was real for them. And they were going, well, if these girls can do it, maybe we can do whatever they wanted to do. And that's exactly the goal of this whole project, is inspiring the kids to, to live their dreams, basically. So you talked just briefly before about how Tracy and Maiden inspired you. Um, and I think it was even, you've talked about as a 12-year-old, a, a Sharon, you wanted to be like the original Maidens, you know. How did that play out and do you feel like a maiden now? <laughs> well, my my WhatsApp groups tell me that I am. <laughs> um, yeah, it's basically I was a 12-year-old heading for trouble and I was the girlfriend taken out to keep the daughter happy on the family yacht for the weekend. And... I just absolutely adored it. We, the first night, you know, it was a Friday after school and work. We sailed out to the uh, the Robertson Island and the Bay of Islands, and that's when you could actually camp on the island. And um, the, her and I scared ourselves silly the first night with every boogie monster you could possibly imagine. Remember, we were 12 and we we're in a pup tent on the beach by ourselves. And then the next day, her dad set up the sailing dinghy for us and, and it was just her and I. We had no clue how to sail. He gave us the basics and basically we just sailed around this bay all day. And her dad was like thoroughly impressed that within a day, his daughter didn't know how to sail. And um, we just we just sailed around and we came, we were absolutely exhausted, came home for dinner. I think we were in asleep snoring by six o'clock in our little pup tent again. And the next day we sailed back to, back into the marina. And um, he said just casually, I think the school's got a sailing team. And what, why don't you go and find out about it? And his name, the teacher's name's Mr. Godbert. And so I got home and didn't stop talking about my my weekend, and I asked my mum if I could go to bed. Early, uh, sorry, go to um, go to school early the next day because I had to go and find this Mr. Godbert. And my mum almost fell off her chair because I was the kid that hid in the dryer not to go to school. Any excuse of not to go to school that was me because I really really struggled, and. Um, and mum was like, sure, you know, so off my three brothers and I went to school early the next morning and I found Mr. Godbert and he gave me a list of values of the school sailing team. 
And it was all about punctuality and attendance and respect and not only for the coaches but for your boat and your level of commitment that you had to be. And he said, if you break these rules, you're out of the team. And so I said, fair enough. And I think I sailed almost every day for the next 25 years after I got that letter. So it was a pretty awesome start. Well, that's a pretty awesome story too. And <laughs> Mr. Godbert is uh, obviously Dairy Godbert, who had who's played a large part, I guess, in the careers of so many um, of New Zealand's top sailors, from Blair Chuk and Andy Maloney to uh, some around-the-world sailors as well. Now, just can you perhaps expand a little bit more on, on what happened and, and what sort of um, environment it was for you to be learning in those early days? Well, we, we've got Lake Manawai up here that Derry did a lot of the coaching from. And basically, it's an irrigation lake that we had a sailing shed on and we had lots of little dinghies out there. And I think it was the camaraderie that Derry established also um, and that height of um, achieving. So basically... Um, Dairy and the parents would cart us off to regattas, school regattas, and there was a big team of us, and he made it very um, effective that the team worked together and that we're, our results were only as good as the, the weakest team in our team. So the team's racing became very important. And, uh, and Kirikiri High School's done phenomenally well in the teams racing, the inter-school teams racing, and internationally. They also won against the adults as well. And he created this whole camaraderie atmosphere where the older kids coached the younger kids and he was coaching everybody but facilitating everybody into so it was one team. And it got to a stage where it was an absolute privilege and, privilege and honour to be in this team. And there was lots of people trying to feed into this team. And um, I think in New Zealand, even globally, he has been one of the most successful coaches um, on the planet because he has, like you say, he's coached Olympians. You've also got um, Andrew Murdoch. You've got the... Um, Sean Clarkson's, who's probably one of the most underrated achieved sailors in, from New Zealand. Um, he's done Olympics and Volvos and Sail GPs and I don't know how many America's Cups. But he was also one of um, Derry's protégés. And, yes, you're right, the, the Blair Tooks and the Andy Maloney's, you've got Alex Maloney. There's a pile of um, – and, and also the, there's young sailors coming through that he's right now, that he's also involved with. He's in his 80s and he's still out there every weekend coaching the kids. Well, that 12-year-old who had that first attempt at sailing around the around the island, uh, 10 years later was going to the Olympics. You got fifth um, in Atlanta in 1996. Um, were the Olympics kind of always on that radar as, as soon as you kind of realised that you had a, a talent for this sport? Well, when I was 14, I wrote an essay for my teacher about where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? And I wrote that I was going to race around the world because Sir Peter Blake and, and the Steinlager boys, I got to meet them when I was 14 and I thought that they were just awesome. And through following them, I met, I was introduced to Maiden and, and Tracy and the girls. 
And so my big goal, my real heart was was ocean racing. And I'd done some coastal racing with my dad, and that was that was pretty awesome. And then through that, I was just determined to go and do this this Whitbread Round the World race. And then I watched Barbara Kendall win her gold medal in Barcelona. And I went, that's pretty cool. That's awesome. And so I kind of went, okay, which way are we going to go? And then to do a Whitbread Round the World race, it was millions. There was no New Zealand team, so it was really hard. And I... Um, it just kind of popped up that the Olympic sailing was more achievable at that time. And so I ate, slept, trained, breathed, everything I did was to get to the Olympics. And um, I did it in two and a half years from, from deciding to do it. And I had to beat Jenny Armstrong to go. And she was in, she was one of the best in the world at the time. So it was a big ask to do it. But I had a plan and I was driven. I put the right people around me to help achieve it and it happened. Boy, that's uh, it's quite a short time frame you're working on there and then quite an achievement not only to get there but then to finish fifth in Atlanta in the Europe dinghy. You know, what was that experience like for you? Um, it, it was phenomenal. I'll never forget walking in to the opening ceremony. And in Atlanta, we were we were all all the athletes were in the stadium next door, and we were watching the the countries before us go in. And then what you had to do is you had to run up this. Well, we had to run because we were actually late um, to go in, and we had to run up the side of the stadium. And then you actually walked down a platform into the stadium so you started at the top and you walked down this huge massive stadium with 80,000 people in it and you know you slowly sunk into it and all of a sudden (laughs) there was just people everywhere and it was incredible to be around that caliber of of people and and that's when it hit me there was holy shivers (laughs) I'm actually at the Olympics (laughs) now I've got to perform (laughs) so I don't know. It was, it was, it was like another regatta, but the pressure is like anything else. Just ahead of you in those standings that that year was Shirley Robertson, who went on to uh, win two gold medals, um, and she was also a guest on Broadreach Radio last year. Now you had a, a training experience with her um, following those Atlanta Games, but it also led to another experience can you just expand a little bit on on that because from what i can tell it changed the course of your sailing career really yeah i um i went to train with shirley in the uk because we became um, quite good friends and training partners and i rocked up to the handball marina and i shirley told me that if i went to this marina i had she had organised permission for me to enter because there was a security day, gate there. And I I ro- rocked up. Um, I was actually with Clifton Webb. He was in his fin and we were going to train there. We were travelling around Europe together at that stage. And um, I rock up and the security guard was, no, there's no permission from Shirley Robinson here, but um, do you mean Tracy Edwards? And I was like, uh no and he goes well Tracy Edwards office is here and her boat's just down there on the dock 
And it was the old Ends in New Zealand and re rebranded as Royal and Sun Alliance. And I was like, holy moly, Tracy Edwards is here. Oh, my goodness. And that's a new boat and that's a new challenge. So I literally jumped out of the car, rocked on down to the boat, talked to Ed Danby and because um, he was working on the boat with, along with some of the other girls and he told me to go up to the office to talk to Tracy and I walked, went straight into the office, talked to Tracy. She asked me to go and send her my CV, so I did. And two weeks later, I was doing the transatlantic record attempt with them. So it was a bit of a, holy moly, here we go. <laughs> Nothing like sort of chucking yourself in the deep end. But do you ever wonder, you know, how your career might have played out if that security guard hadn't told you that just over there is Tracy and her campaign? Uh, no, I don't. No, I have never wondered that question. Um uh, we were there for two weeks, so I would have figured it out eventually. <laughs> um, but it was certainly, certainly, I um, it was an interesting, it was an interesting challenge. I mean, I loved the Jules Verne. The, those girls are some of the the best friends of of mine now, even though it was like 23, 23 years ago now. Um, and I. I don't. I don't think so. It's. Um, I've never really thought about it. Actually, I just wanted to race around the world, so I went and did it. So, how do you prove yourself within two weeks that you deserve to be on this this twenty eight meter long maxi catamaran? You know, Royal and Sun Alliance, uh, going for the Jules Verne Trophy. So, the attempt on the world record sailing nonstop around the world. Well, the transatlantic was my 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 trial. And um, I can't, then I juggled Royal and Sun Alliance and the Europe because um, I was still wanted to go for Sydney because I just, actually flying out of Atlanta, I've checked out um, what I could possibly do in the Winter Olympics because I really wanted to go back to the Olympics. <laughs> but I decided it was too cold. <laughs> um, but I really, really, um, I tried to juggle them both. And and it, it worked well. Unfortunately, Rawlinson Alliance, we dropped the rig in the Southern Ocean, and so that, that was over. But we did get three world speed records in the preparation and the training um, to lead to that, which was pretty awesome. And there's there hasn't been another female team attempt the Jules Verne since, which is a real shame. That's a real pity, and I hope someone gets the opportunity to do that in the future um but it was it was such an experience to to you know we're dodging icebergs in the southern ocean and and going upwind in a maxi cat in the southern ocean I can tell you is absolutely hideous because the boat just racks and it's really uncomfortable and it and it's, it's simply just horrible but you also get the downwind dream days where you're doing 500-mile days and it's incredible. So, um, and I always knew that it would lead on to something. So it was an awesome opportunity and I'm very grateful that Tracy put it together. Yeah, I'm, I'm keen to just to explore that, that attempt a little bit more. Um, so just take you back a little bit, um, 
and and talk about, I guess, what sort of reaction maybe you were getting from the public and in the media uh, before the attempt. Because you know, if you think back to Tracy and the Maiden from from the Around the World um, campaign, yeah, they were written off the before that even left the dock. What was it different this time? You know, was the general support or, or um, had people kind of accepted that? You are a serious contender for this um, record? Yeah, it was completely different. It was um, when we, because we were on standby, um, we were had like the red standby mode, the orange standby and green for go, which means we're off the dock in less than 12 hours. And all our, uh, my family wasn't there because they're on the other side of the world, but the girls' families were there, the European girls. And, you know, we were busy saying goodbye to them and the shore crew and then we set off and I couldn't believe it because all the banks of the Hamble River were filled with people wishing us well and I never I never realized that they were there until we actually started motoring out and there was hundreds if not thousands of people there and and like these people just came out of nowhere and I was like wow this is pretty cool (laughs) Um, and the support and the messages that we got um, for around the world, and we're only we're only I think eighteen hours off the record with the weather getting better uh, towards Cape Horn. So we were we held our own with the record. We were on target for the record. Um, unfortunately, before we were dismasted, so it was it was a very very solid attempt until then. Mm. Yeah, you made really good progress over those four, first 47 days. I think you broke, uh, you mentioned you broke various world records. You were well inside of that um, that record of 71 days, 14 hours, 22 minutes and 8 seconds, just off the top of my that's head. That's pretty good, um, yeah. <laughs> that's what I remember. <laughs> no, I've got that written down. What was your role on the boat? And what I guess what was it like to be on board in those first six weeks? It was, it was a dream come true for me. I was the sailmaker on board. I was um, basically, it was, I mean, I, I see 22-year-olds now and I go, how did Tracy give me that responsibility to be in charge of the engine of the boat? Basically, it was my responsibility and role to firstly design all the sails with the sailmakers, coordinate all their um, arrival, um, make sure that they, the sponsors' logos were absolutely perfect for Royal and Sun Alliance. That was really important. And to also make sure that um, it was, you know, we were on, on key for the sponsorship. And I made it all happen. And But not only that, as I was in charge of the wear and tear of the sails, any chafing, any damage to them, and, and a couple of times, we blew out the the genicas, you know, and they had to be refe- repaired. So I had this tiny little sewing machine in the port bow that I was literally sticking the sails back together with. And these sails were as big as tennis courts, and you you're repairing them in these tiny little um, tunnel, basically. And they went up. They, I repaired. I think I did three or four repairs, and these genicas went back up as soon as we needed them. And it was basically it took me more than twenty four hours to repair them. So um, that was it was tough because also you got out of your sink with your sleep, and then you were fatigued. And it was it was um, ma- you really had to manage your energy when it was like that. 
And that's when Tracy, she did a watch for me once so that I could keep repairing the sails and because we needed it and to get it up as quickly as possible. And it was really cool on this last trip because I was also teaching the Marie, the next maiden, how to repair the sails when we re-ripped the A2. And it was really neat to be passing that knowledge on. So on that 47th day, disaster struck. You know, the mast came crashing down. I think you were about 2,000 miles from Cape Horn. You were on the helm at the time, and I think it was 40 to 50 knot winds, roughly 12 meter waves. What do you remember about that incident? Um, I, the watch before that watch, we didn't have any sails up. And we basically were talking about putting chains out the back. The waves were just massive. And we had the discussion that if we put chains out the back, that's to try and slow down. That we had the fear that we would slow down too much and actually run over the chains and put them around the rudders. And so we, we didn't do that. And then I went off watch and then I got catapulted out of my bunk and basically I was a torpedo in my little sleeping bag. Remember we're in the Southern Ocean here, so the water temperature is probably four degrees. You're, you're a snowman trying to get up on deck and I came up on deck early and that's really not me. Um, and I just said, look, guys, the boat feels like shit. And they said, no, no, actually, when you start driving, it feels okay. So I wasn't due on watch for another half an hour. So I went down and got some dinner, came back up, and the girls were on watch, were really, really tired, and they had quite a bit of sail up. And as the sailmaker, I wasn't happy to have so much sail up. And they said, can you drive? And so I was on the wheel for about literally 30 seconds, and we went down this wave, and there was no way to get off it. And we nosedived. Basically, we almost pitch-poled. Imagine pitch-poling a, a 92-feet boat in the Southern Ocean, and instead of us pitch-poling, the rig went. That was that was the other option. So it was a bit. The rig breaking was the better of the two options, but. It was, I mean, it was gut-wrenching when you see this rig. First of all, it broke up at the shrouds and then it broke halfway down the tube. And it was like your heart just broke in half. And the, and the sound of carbon fibre breaking, it's like um, crumbling up a chip packet and it's just it just creaks and splinters and this carbon fibre just goes everywhere. Um, it was probably one of the most upsetting moments in my whole life to see this rig come down, the gut-wrenching feel of everything's over in an instant and the whole record was over. Um, it was it was horrible. And it probably and probably 23 years later, I'm still not over that rig falling over the side. It was harrowing. Because Tracy's written quite a, a lengthy blog on the incident, and she sort of noted in there that the first thing that many of you uttered was that it meant what it meant for the record attempt. You know, it meant that it over. But it, it was also you're two thousand miles away from any land in the middle of the so Southern Ocean and a pretty decent storm. Were were you ever really worried for your safety? 
feel it took us eight hours to cut the rig away because it was so dangerous and the waves were crushing because of the anchor because the the mast went over the side it turned our side onto the waves with the with the rig to windward of us and the waves were cr- crushing the boat into the leeward hull and luckily we had two hulls so we knew we weren't going to completely sink but the impact of it was that you either clipped on and while you were cutting the rig away, you risked getting crushed by the rig when it moved in the wave, or you get you didn't clip on and you get you the risk was getting washed off in the wave. So for eight hours, every wave we had to comprehend what was going to happen, and it took us um, eight hours to to cut it away because. It was, it was, there's so many pieces of string and we had to do it in the right procedure to take, to get the boat from being side on to the wave to get the rig now in front of the boat. But also we were 2,000 miles away from anywhere. So we had to salvage some of that mast so that we could actually sail to Chile. So it had to be managed, it had to be calculated and we yeah we had to try and salvage as much as we could um and it was a horrible horrible feeling cutting away your sails that you'd been spending so much time nurturing and getting around the world um and one of the girls did get stuck under the rigging and it took all of us to get her out luckily she wasn't hurt but um yeah we had bilge pumps going in the leeward hull because that was getting swamped there was there was a element of um, intensity there, that's for sure. But we worked as a team, and I think there was too much adrenaline pumping to be frightened. I can remember twenty four hours later though that I couldn't walk. I didn't. My body was so beaten up that I had to crawl across the boat to get to the other side because my muscles, everything, just ached. <laughs> Well, you were also tasked with um, making the sale for the jury rig, weren't you? And so, you know, what was it, I guess, like once you'd got everything in order and got the jury rig up and, and you were sailing again, albeit um, with a with a smaller rig um, and, and making progress towards Chile? Was it sort of a, a relief moment? You know, was it a bit of pride? Was it reflection? I wouldn't, well, reflection, yeah, but it was pretty negative. I beat myself pretty much up because I felt responsible that I didn't, I wasn't um, forceful enough to say that I wasn't happy with the boat configuration, but I was the nipper, you know, and when you're the nipper, you get listened to, but at the end of the day, there's two rankings above me or three rankings above me before my my input or say is validated you know and i i regret not being more forceful um but whether whether my that wave was still there we went we went we went 30 knots in boat speed with the jury rig up so whether we had have reduced the sail or not that wave with no back was it was still there it was still going to nail us um and 
I mean, I'll never forget that wave. I'll never forget almost vertically going down a wave. You know, it was, um, I think we hit the wave in front of us doing an astronomical speed, which is why there was damage. Um, I, I, uh, I still had a broken spinnaker downstairs. And when we came into Chile, um, I, with Tracy's permission, I cut the Royal and Sun Alliance logo out of it and um, made a flag out of it. And Royal and Sun Alliance was so happy that I made that flag because the the media, it just went everywhere with this, you know, this dismastered boat with this bunch of girls on it. And we got the first three pages of the ta- Daily Telegraph um, for media attention in the UK. And unfortunately, the only other person to do that was the day Princess Diana died. So the return for Royal and Sun Alliance was massive um, on a media point of view, and they were very, very thankful that I'd I'd given them so much exposure. So did you get a sense, I guess, of how much of an impact you were making when you get three pages of the Daily Tally? Uh, well, we got put up at the Sheraton in Chile, so they were pretty happy with us. <laughs> I'd never stayed in a Sheraton in my life before then. <laughs> so you, you're, you're juggling various sailing commitments at the time and um, you also attempted to get to the, the Sydney Olympics, but you missed out on, on that one um, in the Europe class. You know, how much of a blow was that and how, how difficult was it for you to devote enough time, I guess, to Olympic campaigning? Because you're also doing a bit of match racing at this time as well. Yeah, for, for me, the um, the diversity of sailing helped each of the other disciplines. I, um, for example, my first regatta back in the in the Europe dinghy was uh, the spa regatta up in Holland, and I had Dan Slater as my coach. And after the first day, I came in and and I had a look at the results, and I went up to Dan and I went, Dan, I. I've had a shocker. I'm not even on the result sheet. He goes, did you look at the top? I went, no. And I was leading. And I was so blissfully quick downwind because I'd just done, I don't know, 20,000 miles downwind in a maxi cat that I didn't even consider of looking at the top. So the the downwind sailing, the ocean sailing, it only helps you, I believe, in the Olympic classes. And, and Blair and Pete, you know, they're doing a similar thing. They're, they're in multiple different classes doing well in, in everything. And I, I think it only enhances because you learn. It's the learning. It's what you can um, bring to the different disciplines from the other disciplines that that helps you um, be successful and also it's like cross training you've got to switch it up you can't spend your whole life in one boat because that just gets boring so did sort of missing out for that Sydney Olympics did that kind of put fire I guess in, in, in the valley for the Olymp- uh, Athens campaign definitely Yep, um, Sam Mackey, she she way outsailed me. I got too complicated. It was a huge lesson. I was too busy building Europe dinghies and masts and stuff to to really concentrate on the on the basics. 
and it was a huge um, another kick in the guts. But it was, um, yeah, it was it was tough. You qualify your country for the Olympics, and then you don't get to go. But that's that's the way the Olympics is set up. You know, it's it's the way it is, and um, Sam deserved to go. So why the change to the England class for for the next campaign? Um, I because I'd kind of gone down that keelboat route, um, and also I don't I think I, the hurt was too too raw still to to get back into the Europe. I um, the Europe is one of the most beautiful boats in the world to sail. Don't get me wrong, and it's an absolute disgrace that it's not in the Olympics, because in Atlanta, the top twenty girls or top ten girls, I think there was up to twenty kg difference between the girls, and everyone was competitive because you could design the rigs to suit the the body shape and weight. And the laser radial is, you know, it's very standardised now that what shape and height and weight you have to be. So it cuts a lot of girls out, um, which I don't think is is great. And it's also technical. It makes the girls learn more. I mean, I went and worked at Southern Spas so that I could learn about building my own masks and carbon composites and stuff like that. And it's it's more of a challenge than you just buy something off you buy twenty top sections off a off a shelf and hope for the right one, you know. Um, it's far more technical, and it's I think it was a real shame that that got bought in uh, or got replaced. I can understand the reasoning behind it, but for the development of women's sailing, that was that wasn't that was a step back in my opinion. Um, I I went to the England because I wanted to do something different. I was going more down a keelboat alley, um, and I didn't want to race against Sam again because I knew that she was going again, and I thought we'd have a better chance of New Zealand doing better. So you were seventh with Joanna White and Kylie Jamison in in Athens. Um, Shirley Robertson just incidentally had also changed to the England by that time, and she won gold. How do you look back on that campaign? Um, we lost it in the first day, unfortunately. We did really well. We were uh, we won Miami going into to the Olympics, and we were going super fast. And on the first day, we had two hideous races. That was my responsibility tactically, um, and I regret those decisions. Basically, we had an agreement to to leave the dock at a certain time, and um, we were towed out with the fin class, and they were really he was really late leaving the dock, and we got to the race course with two minutes to spare. And we had no course preparation time. It took a lot longer to tow out than what we thought. And we hadn't done our homework on that as a team. And it was a disaster. And I was unsettled. I didn't have my normal pre-race um, set up. And we didn't know the race course. And we went the wrong way. And we did it twice. And it was like, oh, my God, here we go again. And if you didn't count the first day, I think we ended up with a bronze medal. So it was, yeah, it was unfortunately that Olympics was over before it even started. That's a tough one to take, huh? Yeah, 
Yeah, and it was it was it was it was really hard because that team was incredibly strong. Joe and Kylie are phenomenal sailors, and yeah, it was it was it was hard. So you had another go um, in. 2008 for the Beijing Olympics and you had some notable results along the way even finishing second at the 2005 World Champs uh, incidentally with Raina Haag who I work with at Yachting New Zealand um, but ultimately you weren't selected you know what kept bringing you back to Olympic campaigning I wanted the medal <laughs> I really wanted the medal and I looked at the Olympics again when the double-handed offshore boats were selected but um, I had a horrible feeling that they weren't going to go the longevity, um, which was correct. And I didn't want to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars into a campaign with um, with no results. So I just watched the space. But um, I mean, if there's an opportunity in the future, I would look at it again. So I just want to backtrack maybe a little bit here because there's, you know, so many other things that were going on um, throughout that time. Um, the first is the 2001-2002 Volvo Ocean Race when you joined the all-female crew on Amersports 2. Um, that one wasn't without incident either. You nearly lost your mast on the Sydney to Auckland leg, which incorporated the Sydney Hobart race. Um, and then you withdrew from the team on arrival in Auckland. You know, what was that campaign like? Because you said at the time the crew hadn't even been out overnight on the boat before the start of the race yeah it was there was uh uh well it wasn't a rush campaign basically um Daltz, um he he ran the campaign and there was a boys team and a girls team and two weeks before the start Daltz um switched the boats for who the girls team was going to have and what the boys team was going to have and uh, be interesting to ask him if he regrets that decision or not. Um, and it was it was a campaign that I think SCA looked at really long and hard and, and did a lot of things differently. And you can't you can't stipulate when you get sponsorship and how much time you've got left. And it was a team that grew stronger together um, over time. And when I was in Sydney, Tracy contacted me and said, hey, if I get the old club med, would you come and join me? And I was like, yes, absolutely. Tell me, just tell me when you were there because we weren't doing that well in the Volvo. It was, um, we were always last. And I, I got frustrated because we didn't quite push as I expected we would. And um, this time I did speak up, which was probably to my detriment. And um, I, when Tracy confirmed in Auckland that she got the boat, um, I, I took that opportunity instead. So Tracy's obviously a common theme in your sailing career. Is she just sort of someone you can't say no to? Well, she creates golden opportunities. And you've got when you've got a chance to sail around the race around the world and finish last, or race around the world and go and win, it's a no boner. Which one are you going to do? <laughs> Tracy had purchased this thirty-four meter maxi catamaran club med, renamed it Maiden Two, and was attempting at that time both the two thousand and three Jules Verne and then uh, the race. 
Arguably, I guess the most notable achievement in this period is that Maiden 2 broke the 24-hour distance world record in 2002. You achieved 697 nautical miles in that 24-hour period. I think it's an average of 29 knots. And at one stage, um, reports of clocking 44 knots. What was it like to be involved in that project? But also, what's it like to be sailing that fast? Uh, Well, when you're going that fast, it's effortless. (laughs) Um, One of my most proudest trophies I've got on my wall is a um, Tylaska from Maiden, and that's we were doing the Antigua to Newport world speed record. We were setting it, actually. And we'd come out of the back of Block Island and we had a, a sail on the boat called a Yankee. And to my understanding, Club Med never put this Yankee up because they didn't know how they were going to get it down. It was just so big. It was basically a great big uh, jib top reaching sail and it was the perfect conditions for it. And we put it up and I can finally convince Brian Thompson to put it up and he goes, okay, but you've got to manage it. So we get the sail up and we we're cruising along and he gave me back the helm and we had this most perfect conditions of flat water the perfect breeze at the perfect angle and I was sitting on 36 37 knots and then I was sitting on 39 and the boys were like go Sharon go and then I got got her over 40 knots and it was the first time she'd been over 40 knots and um, as we were coming into Newport, um, unfortunately, the thirty or the three-ton Tylaska on the bottom blew out, and I organised everybody, and and Brian drove the boat quickly, and and we just had this great big sail flapping at the top of the mast coming into Newport Harbour, and. Our problem was is that we didn't fit under the bridge, the Jamestown Bridge that was just inside the, the harbour entrance, and so we had to get the sail down pretty quickly. And Brian drove the boat perfectly. I had the rest of the crew on the bow, and we he just bore away. The sail just fell down, and we all lay on it and secured it to the netting um, coming in at pace. <laughs> so... Um, That boat was just a weapon, an absolute weapon. And when we did the Oryx Quest, another race that Tracy organised, that was one of the first races out of the Middle East. And it was for all the maxi cats. Um, Corrine Fauconet and I were the two girls on... Um, we were called Doha 2005 then, which was made in two. And it was just wicked because we were sailing with people like Brian Thompson, Thomas Cavell, Damien Foxall, and it was just an awesome opportunity to learn. Um, and also people like Paul Larson were on the boat, Fraser Brown. We had all these incredible male sailors that, um, we were we were learning from, and I was brought on as a driver from driving on Maiden Two. I was I was one of the drivers, and it was from that experience that I got to got to do that race. Yeah, as you, I was going to ask you about that one, but you said after that race you were keen on doing the Vendée Globe. You know that single-handed non-stop race. Um, is how far did you get with that ambition? Is it is it still something that's on the bucket list? 
yes, that is the ultimate thing on the bucket list, and uh, and we're we're it's still it's still very much there. So, what makes the Vendée so special, and and I guess what will it take for you to realise that ambition? I mean, the Vendée Globe, in a way, for me, well, it is definitely for me, is the pinnacle of of yachting. It's the pure challenge of, first of all, securing a sponsorship, which is millions of dollars, um, to acquiring one of the most sexiest boats on the water, and and that sheer challenge where it is you and the boat and your ability to keep that boat together and sail in a sail her or the boat in a seaman like manner to completely get around the world and the challenges are absolutely everything from sleep deprivation to nutrition to navigation um sail choices boat repairing boat maintenance um prevention of of breaking equipment and sailing the boat to the conditions and um i've had the pleasure of watching a, quite a few friends race in the Vundi globe and i've followed their their campaigns with huge interest and it's just since i've known about the race it's it's been another definite goal on the bucket list and Probably um, uh, the sooner I can do it, the better for my family because uh, it will maybe get off the bucket list or, or her, God forbid, I want to do it again. But um, no, it's definitely the desire, the passion is there. I really, really want to do it. And it's about finding a pathway to make it happen. So, so no, how far down that pathway are you? And you know, do we need uh, potential sponsors to DM Sharon Ferris uh, Choate? Yeah, please, please knock on the door. Um, the the results from the last um, Bondi Globe was absolutely phenomenal for return on investment for sponsors. It was, uh, I think, twenty to one um, in a dollar value, which was absolutely huge. That it was worth billions of dollars in revenue for sponsors um, because of the magnitude of the challenge in Europe and specifically France, the, the race, that they're like our All Blacks in New Zealand, those sailors, you know, that they are absolute superheroes. And because of that, the coverage and is, is huge and globally now as well. Um, there are over a million people I think playing the virtual game um, globally around the world, there's um, 130 countries broadcasted the uh, last Vondi Globe around the world. So in my opinion, um, it's, it's huge. The return is fantastic for sponsors, especially in this digital age because it is instant um, content straight from the boat for the sponsor to be able to use as they wish and um it's and it's a sold out event you know it's it's the pinnacle of yachting in my opinion well that would just be you know another incredible i guess achievement if you made it to the start line um you know and at the very least you know there's just so much i guess that's on your cv and and there's still a 
another one that I just want to quickly talk to you about because uh, in 2016, you were the skipper of the first all-female crew to take part in the GC32 series. Just just talk to me a little bit about that. You know, How did that opportunity come about and, and what was that like for you? Um, it came about um, when my young, our, our youngest daughter, Victoria, was born. I, it was quite a complicated birth. And when she was born, I promised her that I wasn't going to go anywhere for a year. And um, two years later, I started to get itchy feet and I was scouring the internet for what excited me, what would be, um, what kind of sailing would it need to be for me to, to leave my family and go and do. And I saw one of my mates, Flavio Marazzi, was um, racing on the GC32s and I knew him from Engling and Star Days from the Olympics. So I sent him an email and, and said, hey, I think what you're doing is absolutely amazing. He was the president of the GC32 class then and he was one of the founders of the, of the class and, and one of the first to buy a boat and get the class up and running and um it was it was an awesome circuit and i convinced him that if i got strong enough and fit enough that um i when he wasn't able to do the racing that i would replace him as skipper and we we finished second in palma um and that was you know, it was a, a great achievement. But going into the last race, we could still win it. But unfortunately, um, the America's Cup boys beat us at the post. But it was awesome to to be in that caliber, to be racing and um, sailing on the GC32s. And when we bought the GC32 to New Zealand, we um, we got the girls involved in, as well. We had Kerry McMaster and Bex and a whole other, uh, and Joe. Joe came up white, came back up and sailed with us, and it was great to get the girls um, an opportunity to sail on the boat up in the Bay of Islands. Have you kind of seen attitudes to you know women sailing change over the period, I guess, of your career? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I was a bit naive to how hard it was for girls to get on teams um, because through working hard and, and having good numbers and, and um, just going always beyond the call of duty, you know, like working my tail off basically to get onto these big boats, I was given opportunities that I realise now weren't available to, to everyone fact I mean when we when Corinne and I became the first woman in the world to win a round the world yacht race that was 2005 I mean that was crazy that it took until 2005 to a woman to be on the a winning team of a of a round the world yacht race um and I didn't realize I didn't even realize that we'd done that until 2018 um but that's that's kind of how it, my career's gone is because I've just wanted to do something and I've set a goal and I've just kind of gone like a bulldozer and just found pathways to to make it happen. And now when I see the the girls um like on the last Volvo Ocean race, that that was 
that was a bit hit and miss because some of the girls were on there as a token, which wasn't right, and some of the girls were on there because of their merits. And um, seeing what the Sal GP is doing with the girls, I'm, I'm hoping that they will get more of a role um, to play rather than, again, just being a girl that has to have a girl on the team. I hope to see the girls in there in fundamental roles, and I think we're going to see that hopefully in this in this um, new um, tournament this year that's going on. So hopefully we will see that. And um, yeah, it's just girls need the opportunities and the time, and that's where Maiden is so awesome because we did a twenty six or twenty four day Atlantic passage, and the girls got time to drive in big waves, like three meter waves with a chop on top, and they got to drive with a spinnaker up at night and pushing Maiden safely to her to, before the limits, you know, and. None of the girls had been given that opportunity before. Now there's eight more women in this world or seven more women in this world who have been given that opportunity and you can't take away those miles from them. And the girls, they, they improved out of sight. It was amazing. So, so what would your, I guess, main um, advice be for any sort of young female perhaps listening to this? You know, what is it that they you suggest that they need to do to, to get these opportunities that are hopefully coming along? Apply. Put your hand up. Say you want to do it. Um, I walked into Tracy Edwards' office with no offshore experience at all at 22 years old, you know. Um, I If I hadn't walked into that office, the opportunity wouldn't have been there. It's if you want to do it, just go and apply. They can only say no, they, uh, you know, if, if the worst case scenario or they might, better still, they might suggest that you go and do a couple of things to, to make your CV more attractive. But if you don't try, you'll never know. So you're obviously still very active as a, as a sailor, but how difficult has it been, you know, juggling your sailing commitments with motherhood? <laughs> um, it's it's hard, but it's no different to any other working parent um, or parent who's who's travelling. You know, male or female. You, I listen to dads away from their their kids, and it's the same combination. Sorry, the same conversation with the kids. When are you coming home? We miss you. But at the same time, the kids have to understand that if they want to live in the lifestyle that they're accustomed to, there needs to be sacrifices. Whether you're, you're going 10 minutes down the road um, or you're away from a month at a time, you know, bills still need to be paid. Um, there still needs to be a roof over their heads. And if they want their, their, their treats or their toys, um, you know, the money just doesn't grow on trees it's it's a false economy when you flick a piece of piece of plastic out and all of a sudden they've got a toy um you got to work hard for for all those things and I'm very very blessed that um Neil is very supportive of my sailing and he gets tired of it sometimes you know when he's solo dad and he's working full-time and he's a builder and he's trying to build six houses at once and 
the stress level in the building industry is pretty high right now and he just did two months of it as a solo dad um, and not only that he added to the family by bringing cattle onto the onto the farm so um, it's yeah it's all partnerships and how it works and it's it's really important the people that you put around you are your kids uh, going to become sailors well, no, I've tried to be smarter <laughs> so that I can actually go and watch them. I've tried to put a golf club in their hand and a tennis racket. <laughs> no, the girls the girls can sail. They they um for them sailing's a double edged sword because it takes mum away and I'm flattered that, you know, they want me around. That's pretty cool. Um, but they do know how to sail if they ever needed to get a job anywhere um, as a sailor that, um, or a stewardess or a boat captain. They could definitely have the skills to um, to do that, and we will see what they do. Um, both the girls are so different, and, um, yeah, they're 14 and 9, so we'll see, we'll see what path they choose to go down. So we just briefly mentioned your bucket list, you know, how many other things are still on it and you know what does the future hold for you um i gained a lot of confidence in the in the atlantic crossing because um i was not only skipper but navigator and we took five days off the routing for what we expected which i was really happy about um we were dodging tsunamis and active volcanoes and storms and there was um always this no wind behind us if we didn't push hard enough and then there were so many storms in the north atlantic that it pushed the azores high really south so we had to dive a long way south and then it was really fickle with a really horrid sea state and we um had one of the girls um friends he was tracking us and watching the weather and apparently Unbeknown to us, we, we sailed really, really smart through some really light bands of pressure and um, he couldn't believe that we, we didn't have um, weather communication for five days um, because we, we did a really good job. And I, I gained quietly, you know, that was really a lot of confidence building for me because it's a big step to go from the performance side of the boat where you're in charge of, you know, um, helming or or not helming, you know, but your your role is to be a performance helmsman or a trimmer, to to stepping up to be navigating and the skipper and also leading a team. Um, because it was so rough on maiden, it was real crew management and fatigue management for the girls. So we were switching girls in and out for um for sleeping, you know, having a, a whole eight hours off so that they could catch up on their sleep because they didn't get any sleep for the previous 16 hours because it was so rough. So just managing all that and um, to be having the invitation to be able to go back and do more, that was, um, it was a nice feeling. So is that a roundabout way of saying you've got a couple of um, entries on your calendar of, of some more overseas assignments? Yes, yep, yeah, there is. We're just confirming those now. But um yeah, the the Vundi Globe and, and even a woman's team in the in the Volvo Ocean race, you know, that would that would be um 
I'd be pretty happy to be involved with any of those. Also, I mean, the, you know, the Sal GP and the foiling, that's, that's also there in some capacity as well. I just want to do it all. I'm not ready to retire. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly doesn't sound like it. Um, look, um, it just feels like we've touched the surface. There's so much that's happened in your career. Um, but, um, it, it, you know, it's just a, a snapshot, I guess, of what you've achieved. Before I let you go, though, I want to get the story of your worst wipeout ever. So take it away. Well, I think it has to be a series of wipeouts. The first day I got my Europe dinghy in 2004, I was off Murray's Bay and Christine Webb um, came down to the beach because she got really, really worried because I'd capsized so many times on my first outing that I literally could not keep this Europe dinghy up the right way. And she actually came down to the beach because she was starting to get worried that I wasn't going to get back to the beach. And um, she she was keeping an eye on me, which is absolutely awesome. And she said that she counted like about 40 capsizes in the space of a couple of hours and she was like, oh, my God, and this girl wants to go to the Olympics. And the Olympics was two and a half years away. And I came back. I got the boat back to the beach. And I literally dragged myself up the beach. And Christine, I think, took the boat up the beach for me. And she just said, Sharon, you can do this. And I was looked at her and kind of like, oh, my God, I've got a bit on. And I think that was... That was where I started. And if I can go out and capsize a boat 40 times on my first attempt and get to the Olympics two and a half years later, anybody can do it. If you've got a plan, you've got the passion and put the right people around you, you can, you can also do it. I think that story just exemplifies your determination to make things happen, doesn't it? Yeah, well... I, I've never, like I say, I, I've just been so determined to, to do different things. And that, I think I owe my, that credit to my parents because um, my dad's an engineer and my mum's an entrepreneur and, and she, I mean, my mum and dad, but specifically my mum, I mean, she's just absolutely incredible. Um, to the point where my dad thought she was absolutely crazy because she came up, out on the GC32 foiling with us one day. And my dad was like, what are you doing? <laughs> and my mum was like, hell, if Sharon can do it, I can do it. And I, I had her support. And if she always taught us that if you want something bad enough, you'll find a way of making it happen. So um, I've just had that level of support and that, that is a blessing, you know. It's, it's, I'm incredibly lucky and so are my brothers to, to have her um, in that supportive role. She's always there for us. And, I mean, she's the one that picks up the kids when I'm away and helps Neil and, yeah, she's, she's a rock. She's, she's awesome. Sounds great. Well, we certainly wish you well in your future endeavours and certainly hope to see you in, in some of those um, events that you've you've mentioned. Um, but for now, thanks so much for joining us on Broadreach Radio. It's been it's been excellent to get a, a snapshot of your career. Yeah, thank you. It's 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 um 
it's funny to talk about it. It brings back a lot of great memories. <laughs> if you've made it this far, then hopefully you've enjoyed the episode. It would be great if you could share it to help grow the podcast. As always, drop me a line on michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz with any feedback or suggestions. Otherwise, we'll catch you for the next one. Thank you.